This is gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the Suffering, the suffering Podcast. Podcast. Shadows can chase us for all our lives. Specters of trauma past loom over our shoulders like a ghost in a haunted house and chase us until the day we die. We can only run so far, so fast, and for so long before we wear ourselves out. Unless you pivot and face your shadow, turning directly into its horrifying memory and showing the injury that it cannot define you any longer. Once you're able to shackle and control your shadow, you can begin to use it as your strength. Looking up to this giant and saying, you didn't beat me. I was able to take you down. I am better than you. The best revenge is to be unlike they who caused the injury. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felice, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we sit down with Clark Fredericks to discuss the suffering of revenge. Clark knows all too well about the subject of revenge, and we're going to get into some really deep shit today. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're trying to do to me now. You're bringing a guy that's younger than me, taller than me, full head of hair. You're just, you're coming after me already. Dude, Clark's like, Clark's jacked, too, Yeah, I know. Man. Well, if it's revenge, I ain't going to fuck with him. I know that. <laughs> well, who's the revenge? Who, who's, the, who's the suffering revenge? The suffering revenge is on him. This is what a 56-year-old should look like. <laughs> well, first, I want to thank our marquee sponsor. That's Toyota of Hackensack. We buy our cars from Toyota because we're always treated like family. We're not a number. Go to toyotahackensack.com and let them find you a car. Thank you so much for coming in today, Clark. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, brother. My pleasure. Before we get into anything, we take questions from our audience. Yep. So this week's social media question comes from Gerald. You said Gerald's from North Arlington, so he's a Jersey boy. It says, what's your biggest regret and what did you learn from it? Clark, you're our guest today. Why don't you lead it off? Uh, well, to get into my biggest regret, we'll have to sort of give a little bit of the story away. And uh, I was uh, molested by my Boy Scout leader at a young age and eventually raped. And... Uh, he was a lieutenant at the county jail in our town, and he would take inmates home, young male inmates home, upon their release to mentor them. Oh, is that what they with, call it these days? With his penis. Yeah. yeah. And in the middle of the night, I live in, uh, I grew up in this little town in Sussex County called Stillwater. And uh these inmates would like run out of his house in the middle of the night and hitchhike and, and people in Stillwater would pick them up and they'd be like, you know, this guy from the jail, he offered me a place to get back on my feet. And in the middle of the night, I wake up and he's on top of me. Oh shit. And you know, the residents of Stillwater are like, holy crow, you know, and it just spread around like wildfire. And my dad caught wind of it. And, and my I came home from school uh, and this was after I had been raped. And uh, my father sat me down. He said, son, I can't believe what I'm hearing about Dennis Peck. I'm hearing he was taking inmates home from the jail and molesting them at his house. And people in town have picked up hitchhikers that ran from his house middle of the night, you know, and, and told them what happened. And I just want you to tell me, did he ever touch you? And I'm 13. Going through I, changes in your yeah, body. I, yeah, and I, and I just, a, a year before, got horribly, horribly raped. We'll get into it, you know, but I just, I couldn't bring myself to tell him. And, and that's like, 
you know, I've had this out of control, off the charts life. And I thought I, I had a ton of regrets, but I, I really don't. But I regret at 13, and I know I was a young kid, but if I had told my father then what happened, my life would have went drastically different. Yeah. I could have began healing immediately. It's so scary because I have a, a child that's about to turn 13. And I talk to, I sit him down often and I talk to him on things. Hey, look, this is what you got to look out for. You got to let us know right away. There's no shame in it. You know, we'll take care of stuff like that. Bro, you just scared the shit out of me. Man, and so, by the so way, that was, that, that was my biggest regret. Whatever regrets we got, <laughs> I regret not clipping my nails today or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, geez. Pale in comparison it is. Mike, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm laying this one off on you because you got to follow that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I always say that one of the biggest regrets of my life is when I was younger, I, I, I wound up leaving college and I really didn't have much direction. I was popping in from job to job and I wanted to go into Marine Corps and I came home. I took my test for it and everything. And I told my mother I was going to go to the Marines. She broke down hysterical cry. Uh -huh. I never did it. One of the biggest regret, regrets of my life. For me, Aside from doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's all the relationships that I destroyed because of my trauma. Yeah. And I, it, we, we did an Instagram live earlier today, and it was about self-destruction. And when you go through certain traumas in your life, you really destroy the good things that are surrounding you that you just can't see because you, you feel like you don't deserve them. So there's many, many, many different relationships that I've destroyed because I, I'm broke. I'm still broken, you know, but I was really broken back then. And, you know, I'll, I'll live till my dying day trying to repair certain relationships in my life, right. whether I'll get there or not, who knows, but I'll, I'm willing to go through that suffering in order to repair these, these relationships. You know, that's what we talked about before too. When you're in a deep, dark place and someone's trying to help you, a lot of times you're pushing away Yeah, I don't and, want... you, and you, you know, you ruin those relationships. So, so Mike and I were both in critical incidents and there's people that called us after that. Hey bro, you okay? And I didn't pick up the phone cause I didn't I, like, fuck you. I don't want to talk to you. Right. You know? Did you, did that ever happen to you where somebody, especially later in life, as stuff started coming out that you, that you just sort of pushed them away? Oh, I, I pushed, you know, before I murdered, I, I was content to just be alone in my house, isolating myself with drugs and alcohol. I didn't want friends. I didn't want family. I just wanted to self-destruct, be left alone, let me get high. If I die, I didn't care at that point. Just leave me alone. So, yeah, absolutely. The, you know said, that, I know that all too well. Eh, you just eh. you sit in that chair and you're that like, chair you don't want to do if anything. I don't wake up tomorrow, yeah. that's a good thing. I always said that. Taxes don't, are coming in. Phone calls are coming in. You're just like, no way. I always said going through to my incident, I always said I was never suicidal. I went to bed every night saying, you know what, if I don't wake up tomorrow, it's probably not a bad thing. You know, the funny thing yeah. about that is there are people that reached out to me that I didn't expect to reach out to me. I, I of course, pushed them away. But then there were people who I, I would have expected to reach out to me that didn't. And I kind of held that against them like, you son of a bitch. But being removed from it as far as I did, I understand. Like, what are they going to say? Like, to you, like, if, if, I, if you and I grew up together and I found out what happened to you. What the fuck do you say? Hey, dude, I'm, I'm sorry. The guy who's a kid toucher, you know, right. what, 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 what do you say to that? So I, I see both sides of it. Yeah. You know, when you, when you keep something a secret, it takes on a life of, of its own. And, and I became this other persona yep. 
And, you know, like in, in college, you know, I met, met the girl in my dreams and, and yet, you know, she, she, she would, she said, you know, like I would just get distant on her, like be right in front of her laying in bed and like, I'm staring off. And she's like, where are you right now? And I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and uh, because that was your norm, so you didn't think anything right. was different. But when other people start realizing it, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, no. we're all of the age where we all remember the song that played every ten minutes on MTV. Every rose has its thorn by poison. <laughs> you know, it's uh, we we we're, we we're by we're lying side by side, but we feel miles apart inside, or something like that. And I, I understand. I didn't understand that song when it came out, but I understand that now. I yeah. really do. Like, yeah. you know, you well, sp- that sums it up right yeah, there. It does. Yeah. It yeah. does. Um, you know, so you, you grew up in Stillwater. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you talked about your dad sitting you down, which is a good thing. Was it a good dad? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, uh, uh, my dad struggled. My dad, you know, I, I was raised in a middle class family. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was a good family. My dad struggled, uh, with alcohol, um, until I was like 17, he got sober and he was sober for the rest of his life. And on his deathbed, he's been dead like 23 years now. On his deathbed, he felt the need to confess to me that he was molested by a Catholic priest. Wow. And wow. Yeah. And that answered why he struggled with alcohol early on. And these old timers didn't have what we have now with therapy. They don't have the resources. No. no. And, and you know what? Part of me thinks he told me that because he suspected something with me and he wanted to try to spur me into, you know, speaking out too. No, you imagine living your whole life with this, with this little boy, this boy who you love more than you, yourself and knowing, having an idea that something went on, but being powerless to, to do anything about it, right. knowing because you know firsthand what that's like. Right. Your father. This was his last ditch attempt. You but know? You, you know what I was like, when, when it finally came out, what happened? Could you imagine the, the suffering your father went through? You know, knowing that that happened to him back then, too. He had to relive all those memories again. Knowing the pain right. and suffering that he went through and then seeing his own flesh yeah. and blood do it, too. Well, my father was dead before everything came out about me. But oh, if he suspected oh, before he died, he suspected, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I mentioned that first time he asked me. He asked me again, uh, like another year or so later, because a, a, a lady from our town worked at a Dunkin' Donuts. And my father went in from a coffee and was talking to her. And she told my father how her son was raped by Dennis Pegg. And my father came home. And this time, though, when he sat me down, he said, before you answer my question, I just want you to know you'll never have to go to the police and you'll never have to testify in court. I will take care of Dennis Pegg myself. You just tell me, did he ever touch you? Bro, so I, my I, father's basically telling me I he's love you. go I, kill him. I love yeah. your father. I'm dead serious. <laughs> I, I absolutely love yeah, him. Isn't that like every parent, though? Like, if it, you know, everybody says, oh, if I ever found out this happened to my kid, I'd kill the fucking guy. Well, That's so really what, it, what it comes down to. Funny story about that is when when I when we lived in my first house, my young my young my oldest was born, and there was a guy. He was always high. He was always drunk. Driving. I lived in a small residential street, which was twenty five. Always driving forty fifty miles an hour down the street. I remember one first time I said, "Hey, look, bro, can you slow down? I got small kids. Don't don't speed down here." He kept doing it. So one day I grabbed him. I said, "Look, bro, I love my kids more than I love my freedom. I will fucking kill you, and not think twice about it, and sit in a jail cell happily." 
if you hurt my kids. And he never drove down the street again. Like it was a, I said, this is not, I'm not being euphemistic. I will kill you if you ever do that. Thankfully, it didn't happen. Right. And I didn't have to act on that. But that's how much I loved my kids. I right. still love them. You know, I'm not love, still love them. Um, so what we, we all know, we're here to talk because um, you went through something. You went through every parent's nightmare and every child's nightmare. Yeah, it was it was absolute horror. Now, walk us through the process in the beginning. You said he was a Boy Scout leader. Yeah. And this is, see, this is the reason, I, nothing against the Boy Scouts of America, because I think they do some good things, but it's like a breeding ground, because it happens a lot. It was, for decades it was. Yeah. You know, you know I, I, I worked in New Jersey to get the statute of limitations law overturned, and uh, the Boy Scouts ended up declaring bankruptcy. And 82,000 people came forward, you know, and filed lawsuits against them. That's just the ones that came forward. You know, it's yeah. probably 10 times that amount who, who, you know, the other ones still can't address it's got, it. It's got you know? to be tough to come forward with something like that. Did yeah. That, do yeah. you think any of them ever came forward out of um, maybe it didn't happen and they just wanted to be part of that? Latch on, latch on to I'm a lawsuit. I'm sure you, you get a handful of them. If it's you know? one that was but, molested, that's, but there's, that's bad there's enough. processes you have to go through to yeah. weed that out. And Did, you, you have to... You have to, you know, I had to fill out a 12-page form in my, in the, in the bankruptcy lawsuit. And, yeah. you know, you got to answer a lot of questions. If you're just yeah. bullshitting to get some money, you know, they'll be able to see that. You, you were in that lawsuit, weren't you? I, I was. I was. <laughs> He's one of those latch-on guys, you know. He, he hears money out there. Let me go get him. <laughs> Even the Boy Scout lawsuit isn't off bounds for him? Nah. <laughs> Holy hell. He took it to a real deep, wow. dark place. See, a lot, Clark, a lot of times I just let him talk. And he, and just, he sinks himself. Just digs his own grave right there. <laughs> well, you know, you were talking about regrets before. Putting my foot in my mouth. Yeah. Right a few One of my big regrets. But how? All right, where were we? Clark fits right into this podcast, by the way. I mean, he's it's like he's been here forever. We, we, just we are going to look for a new partner one day. <laughs> <laughs> so how did it? start you always talk you always hear about yeah. grooming like that's the buzz term yeah, yeah, now yeah, yeah I, I'll, I'll get through it quick for you you know since we're limited time but uh i had an older brother six years older than me and he was in the scouts and this guy you know predators have to befriend, befriend the family and this guy befriended our family and when when i say befriended we took him in we were the sheep we had uh, prime hunting land he hunted with us every year deer hunted um he spent all the holidays with us. Back then, my parents owned a restaurant. My father put on big Sunday night meals, and he would come and drink wine and tell stories about beating inmates at the jail. Uh, he, he got into a serious car crash, and my mother insisted he recuperate out of our house so she could bathe him and wow. feed him and mend him back to health. And meanwhile, the wheels are just churning in this guy's head. I was born with a hole in my heart. At age six... The doctors came to my parents and said, you know, we've been monitoring Clark. His hole has grown to the size of a half dollar. We have to operate within the next six months. So I went into Mount Sinai Hospital in the city and had open heart surgery at age seven. I have keloid condition where my scar is raised up. My parents were so proud of me for surviving this open heart surgery, they my scar was pronounced, and it looked like a zipper. And they, they would have me do what is like a peep show, 
and lift my shirt to all their friends, collect a quarter, and they would show, be like, show your zipper. <laughs> so like, here I'm doing this peep show to all their friends all the time. You know, little seven-year-old Clark survived this open-heart surgery collecting quarters. One of their friends was Dennis Peck. Well, that's actually a cool way to do it for your parents. I, I want to I touch on that. So they took that negative you know, where you might be self-conscious of I it. I totally was self-conscious. And, and you know, it, at that age, you just want to fit in. Right. And now I stand out. Plus, it's keloid. It's raised up. Mm. It's bigger. But maybe they were trying to, what I'm saying is maybe they were trying to do it to get you over that self-consciousness. Right. Yeah, that could be. You yeah. know, I never even thought of that. Yeah. Did, you, did you get the quarter or did your parents keep it? <laughs> <laughs> so no, they gave it to Dennis Peck. <laughs> so this is, this is like four months after my surgery, life or death surgery. It's a summer day, like June, July, and we had a big backyard. We had a uh, screened-in porch and bar area. Everybody's out back. I came in for a drink and to watch TV for a minute, and the TV room was right next to the front door. Boom, boom, boom. Dennis Pegg's at the front door. I, I idolized him, you know. He, you know, he was the big man around town. You know, he was a hulking 265-pound guy. And I let him in. He's like, hey, little buddy, you know, tussles my hair. Where is everybody? You know, I'm, I'm like, they're out back. What are you doing? I'm watching TV for a minute. Oh, let's sit. And he's like, hey, I got a quarter. Let me see your scar. So I'm like, sure, Dan. I lift my shirt up to my chin. And he's like, I've never seen a scar so raised up like yours. How about I give you a dollar? You let me touch it. I'm like, sure. Why not? It's a dollar. Yeah. Sure. So, At so, that age. so he takes his two big meaty fingers and he's going up and down my scar and then he goes below my scar line and he's like pushing in on my abdomen is your stomach sore from the surgery little buddy i'm like no then he's you know after a minute or so he's like all right here's your dollar now this is our little secret we can't be friends if you can't keep a secret you got that army buddy i'm like sure then all right i'm going out back put that in your piggy bank i'll see you out back and 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 that would so here, four months after this life or death surgery, this animal, this predator, uh, that he uses yeah. that as his in. And not only, you know, has he started the grooming, it's physical grooming and it's secrets. And it, everything became a secret after that. God damn, man. Like so. you, you, you're stepping back as an adult right now and going, how did nobody see this shit? Yeah, but uh, it's I mean, always I'm sure out of the very, watchful yeah, eye. Out of the like watchful that. eye. And and this is something you said you idolized. So you're yeah. going to do almost anything he wants you to do. He's and, he's me. and he's right giving you money. He's got and he's giving you he's money. Got me. Uh, he's already done the physical <laughs> touching. You know, there's a process these yeah. animals do. And they're very good at it. Ah, oh, yeah. It's like there's a playbook they all <laughs> they all read. Like, okay. Because uh, I'll tell you now. 32 you know, dive right into his pants. It's the Nambla playbook. Yeah, those animals probably did. Put one out, you know. And uh, I grew up at at a lake community in Stillwater called Paul and Skill Lake. And back then, you know, when we grew up, you learned how to ride your bike, and you were told, "Be gone, go play, be home at dinner time." Everybody, all the young kids, went down to the. There's a dam there, which separates the lake into the Paul and Skill River, and that's where everybody congregated. There was basketball courts and jungle gyms, and tennis courts, and, and swimming and normal fishing. kid shit. Yeah. So, and this was Dennis Pegg's t- trolling oh. ground. So it's like a candy store for him. So I'm down there and, uh, you know, eight years old, seven years old. He's spending hours with all those young boys teaching us how to fish. Nine years old, he's inviting me into his pickup truck to split a six pack of beer. And he's like, at uh, nine, nine. 
I could get in a lot of trouble. You know, like there's alcohol, there's pornography, there's touching. It's it's right the out of the playbook. Yeah. yeah. And, and so nine years old, I'm splitting a, a, a six pack. And he's like, I could get in a lot of trouble, you know, uh, uh, at the jail if, if if this came out. I'm like, And I'm thinking to myself, why in the world would I want to ruin this? I'm getting to have beers with. with and, the, and look at a porno. Well, I wasn't looking at porn yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but yeah. And so another secret. And then and then it's hop in my truck, have a beer. My friend just bought this farmhouse, and there was this old desk left behind. And I opened up the drawer, and it was filled with porn pictures. Come on, let's look at some in my truck. And I'm thinking, oh, cool, you know, I'm cool. see some naked breasts or something. Beer, naked and it's, women. It's all Polaroids of close-ups of penises. And I'm like, oh. and he's like, look at these. And he's laughing and joking like it's a big joke. Look at these. Look at these. And I'm like, oh, where's all the, <laughs> where's all the where women? Are the women, Den? <laughs> Oh, those must have been in the other drawer. I just grabbed a handful real quick. I'll grab I'll grab some out of the other drawer next time. You know, so he's gauging me and he's he's trying to normalize penises. You know, he always was taking trips out west and he went to Yellowstone Park one time and he came back down at the down at the lake again. You know, everything's down at the lake. And uh he's like, Oh, you know, I just got back from Yellowstone. And back then the Marlboro man was the epitome of cool. <laughs> He, Very yes, yeah, ultra masculine. Yeah, he tells me, "Oh, on the trip, I met the Marlboro Man, and, and what a great guy! And, and would you believe he shared with me that he's gay? And, and it didn't bother me in the least. You know, he was the greatest guy. We went to dinner three nights in a row. I don't know if he ever met the friggin' Marlboro mm. Man or Marlboro Man. It's a great gay, story, but he's but telling, you're young and impressionable. Now he's he's bringing you closer in, but right?" You're meeting and, another and, idol. Right. And normalizing male-on-male behavior. And another secret. Another secret. And then, you know, at the dam area where we used to congregate, on the other side of Stillwater by his house, um, is is another fishing area by the grist mill. And, and he'd be like, ah, the fish aren't biting here. Let's go over by the grist mill. And every time we went to go over by the grist mill, he would somehow slip into the water. Ah, I just slipped in the water. Come on, we got to go to my house so I can change my shoes. And he was always taking me to his house to have a beer. Oh, let's have a beer while we're here. And, you know, so this is, you know, over the course of a couple of years, I don't know how many times he went to his house, but it's getting me comfortable being at his house. Ten, ten years old. I want everybody. I want everybody to listen to what Clark is saying right here and keep, we all love our children and we never want something like this to happen. Just identify everything that, that Clark is saying, because this is not unusual behavior for somebody who is, has an affinity for, for young children. Yeah. And, and you know, he, he was methodical and I'm sure he had other boys in the pipeline of this behavior that were at various stages. I made it, I might've been back at the early stage and he might've had five kids at the stage of it's time for molestation stage. And then guys that graduated from molestation stage. Too, right. You know, exactly. So this is going on for years. He, he had a 45 year reign of terror in our yeah. town. So, you know, uh, so, and he was, it's not like, it's not like you're, you're going down to the dam and some homeless guys, grabbing at you and, and pulling your pants down. This is years of, of slow, methodical He behavior. put in the work. Yeah. He put he in the was, work. 
as the state police told me, he was a professional hunter of children, and he was very good at it. Damn. I mean, I I, I don't even know where to go yeah. with that. Like, now, the first time that he actually... Like, how did it work? Did he, he groomed you for all these years. The, the, the next stage was wrestling matches at his house. You know, let's go to my house. This is a different there. strokes episode. <laughs> this is that's what this is. I don't know if you saw that different strokes nah. episode. So it was one of the first of its kind before this, like child molestation wasn't really spoken about on, say, network TV. You remember different strokes with yep. Arnold and Willis? What you talking about, Willis? Right. Yeah. So him, uh, Arnold and Willis go to this guy's house. And I swear, and uh, or, uh, not Arnold Willis, uh, uh, Arnold and uh, Dudley, his best friend, they go to this house, and the the guy who's grooming them, it's an abbreviated, obviously it's a half hour show, so it's an abbreviated thing, but everything that you're saying, I'm telling you, every single thing that you're saying, this guy on this show did, as far as the porn mags, the liquor, the taking your shirt off and wrestling matches, and I, I, it, it's like... It's like you wrote the script for that show that was in the eighties, so that's that's why it's it's very. It's like I'm very, saying, there's a, there's a playbook somewhere we're we're missing, you it, know, but an that, underground it, playbook. But that was a re- like they uh, the networks didn't want to show that they didn't want to show that it was a big controversy wow, when it came. Yeah, out. I never I never heard of that. If episode. you watch that episode, well, I don't know if you could. Uh, it might I don't. <laughs> I imagine it brings up some bad memories, but if you watch that episode, you'll be like, yeah, he did that. He did because everything you're describing, I remember that episode very clearly. Take out the checklist, Jack. He Check. did that. He yeah, did yeah, that. Yeah. He, he did, did that. that. So the wrestling matches continue, and you know you get a little grab in here, you get a little grab in there. Well, he's 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 wrestling, and he's obviously erect, you know. But at at that age, you're just like oh, I don't know whatever, you know. You don't really th- looking back on it now. And your age, your age at this I'm time, ten. You're ten, and uh, so then it. It progresses to, at age 11, we get to his house, and instead of just Budweiser beers, he gives me uh, glassfuls of blackberry brandy. Which is everybody's first liquor. <laughs> let's chug the... It'll let's, keep, it'll so keep I you warm. two glasses of blackberry brandy at, at 11 years old, plus Budweiser. I'm bombed. And he wants to play a game called Bumping Logs. Let's play bumping logs. And I'll... Didn't you play this in high school? <laughs> played it just before I came up here. <laughs> so, and you say I'm bad. This is my trauma we're dealing with here, you animals. <laughs> I had to break that one up because I'm, I'm getting this sword fighting image in my head. I'm like, I got to get that out of there. I got to get it out. Well, he, he, he disappears to his bedroom. And I don't, he's like, I'll be right back. And he comes back, and, and I thought he put something into his sh- – he always wore cargo shorts, you know, with those all those mm-hmm. pockets. And he's got something sticking out in his shorts. And I thought he just put something in, in his shorts. Like a 10-year-old joke, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he picks me up from the chair, stand up, and he starts pulling me into himself. And he's like, your log's not ready yet. We got to get your log ready. And he sits me down on the chair. I'm wearing shorts. It's in the summer. And he's like, close your eyes. And don't open them no matter what happens. I close my eyes, and within seconds, he's got my shorts down. He starts blowing me, and and my eyes instantly open, and he's got his penis out, and he's jerking off as he's doing it. And and I am paralyzed, gripped to the chair, frozen in fear, like, what in the hell is going on here? Yeah, and and, and he finishes himself off, you know. And uh, 
there's no greater violation in the world yeah. than than touching a child. I, I'm at a I'm at a loss for words. And, and pleasuring yourself as you're touching a child. And, I, you know, it, and just to skip forward a hair because it ties into that. After I got arrested, a guy from our town came forward to the uh, prosecutor, and he said, you know, I've known Dennis Pegg for 30 years. I just want it to be known that he was the greatest guy ever. And they're like, okay. And he's like, but he did confess to me 20 years ago that he enjoyed blowing Boy Scouts. But I want, he was a great guy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, and I'm reading this like, and he wanted, he emphasized what a great guy Dennis was. Like, you just said he confessed to you that he loved blowing Boy Scouts. The great guy is done. Yeah. The animal is out. There is no great guy. You know, Adolf Hitler loved animals. <laughs> great animal lover. Yeah. Oh, killed the six million Jews, but don't worry about that. Right. You know, he just loved animals. Jesus. I mean, people will put a spin I mean, on anything. Some, some should be done to that guy if he knew 20 years ago. How many victims could he have actually saved by coming forward back then? Then you're culpable. Yeah. Then you're complicit in whatever crime it is. Right. Right. I mean, I, I don't. Oh, my gosh. I. It's un- it's unbelievable. And that this guy would come forward and say and that. Now you you leave that you leave his house after what just happened, and you're ten years old. I, at ten years old, the the mental acuity to to just process what just happened, your yeah, first sexual I experience. Yeah. I couldn't, and I just I, I I was able to just put it out of my mind. And like, you know, it's not like I'm living with my monster. It's not like you know. I'm a girl and going home to my father every day after school and he's raping me or something, you know, because I've had enough of those people reach out to me. And it's just it's unbelievable. My 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 things were spaced out with him, you know. It wasn't so, one right after the other is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, it was a progression over years of, of this stuff, you know. So let's jump forward to age 12. Age 12, he concocts this whole cockamamie story. You it, keep going back to his house because it's normalized at this point. Yeah. And you're getting alcohol. Age 12, he concocts this cockamamie story. I'm not going to go into the story. But it leads us back to his house. And and it was a summer day. But inside his house, I almost think he turned the heat on in there. Because the house was stifling. And black glasses of blackberry brandy. Budweiser beer. Were you when you were drinking that? Did you have it in your mind like, oh shit, this is happening again? That happen again? I'm yeah. like, but but I was so paranoid driving to his house that I I, I wanted to get <laughs> get a drink in me. Like, Needed something I, to calm my yeah, nerves. Yeah, you know, like I'm I'm just like you know I'm like uh, let's let's pound this. Did you ever try to get out? No, no, no. And, and you know, this all plays with your mind as you get older and you become a man and you're like, motherfucker. Yeah. Why, why didn't I see it? Yeah. Why didn't I see it back then? And that's, that's the thing, the dichotomy of, of still having that 12 year old boy inside you that hasn't healed yet and being a grown man who wants to snap his neck in half. You know, I had a recurring dream throughout my whole life of the grown up Clark would bust through the door of his house and rescue the 12-year-old Clark right before the shit happened. And that was always a recurring dream. While, while this stuff is happening, did you ever escape? Because I know there's other, I've read other child victims of, of child molestation 
they they escape into like comic books. And yeah. the, the reason they do that is because they want that hero to either be that hero or have that hero come save them. Right. Um, yeah. Was there any, not superheroes per se, but was there anything that you escaped into at that age? No. Right after the rape, there's stuff I escaped into. Right. We'll get into that. But <laughs> so you're so 12, at age, at age 12, we got, he's got this story. It ends up being at his house, alcohol, and he's got me naked in his on his bed behind me in a bear like he's got me wrapped up and he's raping me i'm screaming i'm crying i'm screaming i'm crying and i tell people you know i i know at times people feel like they're alone in the world i i i literally felt like the only person on the face of the planet nobody came to my rescue i was an altar boy in the episcopal church god didn't strike this piece of shit down yeah. i felt totally alone with this evil entity raping me he gets done as i'm crying and screaming he says to me just another minute so he could make sure he finished that's what this piece of crap whispered in my ear from behind as i'm screaming and crying just another minute we get done he cleans me up sets me down at his kitchen table gives me a beer he had a coon dog, what's called a coon dog, and coon dogs have long, drawn-out howls. This, this dog was going nuts because of my cries and screams. He brings his coon dog in right in front of me at the table, and he says, I want to show you what will happen if you open your mouth like my dog. And he starts beating on this dog, beating, beating with his big fists, beating, beating, beating. I'm screaming and crying for him to please stop. The dog lays unconscious at my feet. You open your mouth about what happened here today. That's what's going to happen to you. He so just, what the fuck do I do now? He just struck what the, the fuck do I do? He just transferred. He transferred your pain because it sounds. It sounds like. Correct me if I'm wrong. You have some sort of love for animals. Little kids and animals have always loved me. Okay, little kids and animals have always loved you. So you're watching this. And all of a sudden, you, you forget about yourself for a second. It was to, very smart. To me, to me, what happened to that dog was worse than the rape. Way worse. Right. Because so, I was responsible yeah. for that dog's house. Yeah. But that exactly. was something purposeful that he did, knowing that you would have, you. well, I'm going to forget about me for a second, this poor dog. And then you give it a, give it a chance just to get out of your system. I, that, that's what my theory is. I'm, well, not, I'm not a medical professional. Called throwing a scent. You yeah. throw the scent onto something else, so you forget the stink of the other scent. God damn! And and in the play in the playbook of a predator is incite fear in your victim. Yeah, he incited yeah. fear. You know. Now after that, that was the that was the first time that he entered you. Yeah. All right. First and last. First and last. So he did it one. Well, I mean, one time's enough. Yeah. Well, you know the blowjob. You know the wrestling. You know it was like I said, it was methodical. It was you know so there the, was a process. There's a progression. This gentleman was a corrections officer. Ugh. Look at it up. And well-respected man in town. Oh, he was, you know, people in your audience can Google Dennis Pegg, P-E-G-G, -G, obituary. Mm. I think the family thought they were doing this great service to him by listing all the organizations he was in. This this friggin' guy was in every organization under the sun. There, ha there has to be 30, 40 organizations in his obituary. And the police are like, that's all his hunting ground. Of course, yeah. uh, of course, Dennis can't be a bad guy. Look at all the good that he did, right? <laughs> yeah. God, what? You know, people get so blinded by that stuff. Did, did he? Did he coach like little kid sports and all that stuff too? 
Well, I, how, how about one better? His house sat on a, a little hill that overlooked the elementary school. Oh my God! So whenever there's a baseball game going on, oh, baseball game going on. Let me go. Let me go down to the field. Let me see who's around. Yeah, yeah. He was at all the baseball games. So what happens after this rape? So after this rape, he drops me off back at the dam area. Are you medically okay? I, I don't want to. I, I don't. Again, I don't. Want, I'm not. I'm not here to be disrespectful because that's the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my life. By the way, um, physically okay. You're, are you like you got to get sewn up? You like what? No, no, I'm physically okay. Yeah, physically okay. Yeah. You don't have to go to the hospital to. He obviously he doesn't want you to go to the hospital, but nah, I mean, you, you want me to go into deal, detail? <laughs> I mean, are you, into are, detail. You, are you ripped the, the, up? The, the piece the piece of crap entered me a few a few times and then used my ass cheeks to squeeze against his his penis to that way. Holy shit! Yeah, holy shit! That's when he's whispering. Just another minute. I have been on cases where this has happened. I have never spoken to somebody as an adult that's had that happen and i'm sitting here my stomach is a and i've never fucking I, i've knot. never ever shared that part like nobody's ever asked me yeah. my, you know, my stomach is somebody asked me i will tell them i <laughs> want you people to me. get the visual yeah. of what this does physically then we're going to get into what it did emotionally which is i, I i'm going to guess is probably worse than the physical the physical you you can you know, you can toughen up a little bit on that stuff. The emotional stuff is the scars are, geez, I can't, I don't even want to think about it. But I want people to get the visual. And graphic stuff like this, uh, my stomach is churning right now. Like, I, I, I think I got to take a shit. <laughs> I'm just, like, that's, that's, I, that's I what like it I, did I feel to like me. I'm going to throw up. That's, I, I don't. I mean, that's, that's I, terrible. You see, this might be the worst thing I ever heard. Yeah, it was this, horrible. This, it was horrific, dude. Which. This ranks up there with Gene Halberg. Gene yeah. Halberger lost his son to suicide, but this ranks up there with that, this piece of dog shit. Um, there's no other word for him, but, you know, if you're, if you're a God-fearing man or even whatever religion you believe in, there is a special place where Dennis Pegg is. And I'm going to say his name because I want his yeah. name to be out there. Yeah. What, what, does his, he, I'm sure he's had his family because you said they had the obituary and all that. Is his family still in that area? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have they ever reached out to you to say? You know what? Nobody's ever asked me that until I just got a new Instagram follower uh, last week, and they they like the suffering podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and and they they went through a whole bunch of my posts, and they they commented on them, and and on one of the comments was, "Has Dennis Pegg's family ever reached out to apologize to you or to say anything to you?" And my answer was no. You know, and I, stupidly. I I was originally going to reach out to them, but then I read all their interrogations, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not reaching out to them. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not like, worth your time and effort. I, no. I pray that one of them listens to one of your speaking engagements or this show and to hear the horror that you went through physically. Now, after this, yeah. you go home. You run right to your room? Well, he dropped me off at, at the lake, and... And I wanted to be away from the dam where all the kids con congregated. I, I ran, I ditched my bike in the weeds and I ran down the river and I was just hugging myself and, and, and I'm rocking back and forth alongside the river. And my mind told me right then, we are never going to talk about this. Talking about it is reliving it and we don't want to fucking relive There's it. There's almost got to be some sort of embarrassment too. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, the shame is off the charts. It's not like you're going to get to a friend and say, hey, guess what just happened to me? Well, did, you, know, did it, you ever think that, hey, listen, I just got 
I just got raped by a man. I'm, I'm, I must be gay. No, you know, a lot of, a lot, you know, and I'm not doing it. I'm not saying this to protect myself. A, a lot of victims reach out to me and they say it confused their sexuality. I never felt confused. Okay. Yeah, right. no. That, that's but, things I've heard. But yeah. my mind told me throughout my 20s and into my 30s, we got to sleep with as many women as we possibly can to feel like a man. To overcompensate. It, it just, I, I, I was a one night stand maniac in my 20s. You know, I couldn't. You know, sleep with enough women, and it left me going into my thirties feeling empty. I felt like a shell just from. I sabotaged every relationship and and every career because I never wanted to feel trapped. Trapped is how I felt yeah. in that house, and I never wanted to feel trapped again. Now, what did you? How did you cope going into your adolescent years? Yeah, yeah. And he raped me. This they built a new high school. And they put 7th and 8th grade in the high school and took it out of the elementary school. And it was the summer after of, of me graduating 6th grade before I started 7th grade. If you had told me in 6th grade a month before about smoking pot or any other drug, I would have. it was like completely foreign to me. I go into 7th grade and I got all this pain and shame I'm trying to deal with. I have zero coping mechanisms. My mind's told me we're not going to talk about it. So I start smoking weed on a regular basis. 12 years old, I'm smoking weed regularly. I come home one day from school, and sitting on my bed is a bag of weed, a pot pipe, and rolling papers. <laughs> I thought I was so cool hiding it in my room, and my father found it. And he's like, what the fuck is this? And, you know, and back then... You know, he missed a perfect opportunity to open up a dialogue yeah. with me and get me to talk. Instead, he took the authoritarian approach and he's like, I already researched military schools. There's one down by Philadelphia. You keep this shit up. I'm sending you to military school. And that, that shut me right up. You now, know, there's no there's no talking to him. Though. But now, you know, now your coping skill, your coping mechanism is gone. Now what? Oh, that lasted for a couple of weeks, and oh, okay. then I started right back up again. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Did it ever progress beyond weed? Uh, yeah. I, going <laughs> going into high school, alcohol got easier to get. Back then, there was paper licenses, no picture. Yeah, you know, I remember, remember. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had an older brother, six years older. He gave me his paper license. I had heard you expired. could get them pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. heard. So now so I, I, I got his paper license. The drinking age is 18. I'm going into bars with him. He's he's vouching for me like yeah that's my brother. Should have yeah. went to the Grand Saloon to get your liquor. They got good liquor. They're one of our sponsors. Oh. Grand <laughs> I love yeah. the Grand Saloon. Grand, <laughs> great. Grand Saloon's great, man. You get all the liquor you want, except there's no child molesters in there, so it's, you're, <laughs> you're free to go there. So uh, so so you know like uh, you know I, I, I'm a heavy drinker in high school. You know, I was just gonna say he, he goes to the bar with his brother, and the brother vouches for him, and they have a license with the same name on it. <laughs> hey, there's not the top brass working at bars. <laughs> By the way, Mike, I just want to where do you where do you work now? No, you work at a bar. Right. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, but that, that it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You're going to try to escape any way you can. Yeah. Numb it. I had no coping yeah. skills. Yeah, none. So I, I go into college. I went to Northeastern University up in Boston, Mass. I try. This is the '80s. I went to college at '84. I tried cocaine for the first time, and I absolutely fucking loved it. It made me feel <laughs> strong and powerful. It took all away those insecurities, that self-loathing. 
It made me outgoing. Did you ever see that new uh, that new reel that's out on Instagram? It's like somebody's talking. and says, yeah, my favorite type of weed was um, um, cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would be sho- – if I was in your shoes, I would be shoving anything in me. Self-medicating. Yeah, man. Nose, mouth, smoke, whatever. Inge- I would have yeah. – and you know what? If it ever came out, you ever got caught with anything? If it ever came out, what people are going to go, oh, okay, I get it. Right. I get it. How about your mother? Is your mother in the picture? Yeah, she's still alive. Okay, your mother's still alive. What was her did, – did she ever have some some suspicions? I'm sure your father talked to her. Yeah, you know, sure, you know. But, you know, like, what do you do when your your kid says absolutely not? What are you supposed to do, you know? I, yeah. Uh, no, Mom, never happened. Okay, well, if something does happen, tell me. Right. And you've already been warned not to say anything and all that, so you're not really going to open up. Yeah. Now yeah. we get, fast forward, you become an adult. Dennis Pegg is still living in Stillwater. His family is still in Stillwater. You've pro- obviously seen him around town numerous times when you're there. Yeah, we'd pass each other on the road. One time I saw him in a bar. Did he ever wave to you? Say oh, hi? Yeah. Hey. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, nothing yeah. happened? Like we're best friends. Really? <laughs> like- now, you have the opportunity to do what everybody in your position wishes they can do, which is take care of business. Yeah. Well, what, what happened is uh, I ran into him after work one day in a, in a deli, quick check deli, and I was getting a coffee, and he walked in the door. He, he saw me. Again, no shame. Here I am, a, a childhood rape victim of his, and he yells out, hey, Clark. And, and I instantly go into a panic attack, I, like, I'm, I'm gulping for air. My palms are sweating. My mind's spinning. How old, how old were you at this point? Um, uh, when was this? I'm like 45 now. And trailing in right behind him is a young boy about the age he raped me at. And that young boy calls him the same nickname he used to insist I call him. And I heard that nickname, and it just opened up everything I had buried. I had never told anyone up to this point about what had happened to me. You know, I, as I said, at the, at the river that day, I, my mind said, we're not going to talk about it. And I didn't. So I hear that nickname and I see that boy and the age I was at and, and I snap and I run out of there. I get in my truck. I, I speed out of the parking lot. I go down the road. I'm punching my steering wheel. I'm cursing. I'm spitting on the on my on passenger floor. Dennis Pegg's probably like, "What's his problem?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like just like that. Yeah, yeah. And and my life unravels. And I walk out of a family business I was in two months later. And now I have free time. I have Dennis Pegg on f- the forefront of my mind, and I can't shake him. And the only thing I knew to do was to dive headfirst into drugs and alcohol. When I, you know, when I posted one time on, on Instagram on the amount of drugs I was doing, and, and somebody said, "That's bullshit. Nobody's doing that much." And my friend, <laughs> who was knew me, he responded, "If anything, Clark is underestimating." <laughs> so, and I'm not here to like. I don't know how I'm still alive. You know, yeah. I'm not here to promote drug use, you know, but I, I, I had a pain pill addiction. I, I, I herniated a, uh, my back and the doctor gave me 30 Vicodin. I ate, ate them in three days. I'm like, 
I felt like Superman. Right. So now. Numb, no emotion, no pain, no nothing. I call him up after three days for more. And he's like, that was way too fast. I'll give you 10 more. That's it. Well, that wasn't acceptable to me. I knew people on the street for, for Coke and weed. I just started asking around. Boom. I got, I got pills coming in left and right. So I, so I had a, a, a pain. I, I'm taking, you know, anywhere, depending on what strength, I got 10 to two dozen pain pills a day. I'm doing three to five grams of Coke a day. Instead of buying grams now, I'm buying ounces of Coke a week. I'm popping Xanax like they're Tic Tacs because of all the Coke I'm doing. So I'm taking six to 12 Xanax a day. Holy shit. And I'm drinking. That's an expensive habit you got there. Yeah. Well, I'm selling drugs too to pay for it. Ah, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I'm drinking, I'm drinking superhuman amounts of alcohol. Who's an entrepreneur also? Yes, 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 yes. So you. Hey, when you want to self destruct, it's expensive to kill yourself. What was the breaking point though where you go find Dennis? I I had a a business deal where I got burned for, you know, a decent amount of money and I saw the guy. I saw the guy out, and this was the same day of the start of the Jerry Sandusky molestation, yeah, molestation trial, trial out at Penn State. I had been on a three-day bender. I got a couple hours of sleep. I woke up, did a line of Coke, poured a glass of wine, put on the TV, and it's a Sandusky trial. I start, like I was in my truck that day, I yeah. start cursing and spitting on my bedroom floor. I go out that day. Drinking and snorting all day long. I had a friend come into my house who was going to power wash the cedar siding in my house, and he was dropping off the equipment that night. I run into this guy who burned me on a business deal, and I had words with him. When I met my friend at the house, he knew about the story with the guy who burned me on the money, and I I said I ran into him. And he said to me, that guy's got to be number one on your hit list. And before I could stop the words coming out of my mouth, you know, I, I, I was getting so little sleep at this point. I, I, I'm coked, Half delirious. I'm coked out to the bejesus. You start hallucinating when you're not sleeping. I say to him, actually, he's number two. The scumbag who raped me as a child is number one. And there did, it's out. Did, did you just like, fuck. And <laughs> what the room just, just stopped. Yeah. Like he's staring at me like you are right now. <laughs> and he's like, are you fucking for real? I'm like, yeah. And he asked me who he was. Where's he? Where's he live? One of us says. Let's go get him. Whichever one of us said it, whatever. And it, it sounded like a fucking great idea. We he literally, he literally lived two miles from my house. I don't know if he still lives there. We drive over there. I, we park halfway up the driveway. I get out. I run up the driveway. I look in. His his front door is open. The screen door is shut. And there he is sitting, sitting watching TV. And it was literally like seeing the devil sitting in his lair. They just enraged. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm enraged. And I'm also going into that panic attack mode. I'm still that little 12-year-old kid who got raped in that house. Before I can freeze, I go up to the screen door and I rip it open. I break the hinge off. I rip it open so hard. It's 930 at night. Uh, a, A person you raped as a child is standing in your doorway. And what he said next, like, determined his fate to me. He casually, looked o- he casually looked over his shoulder. He didn't like 
plead or apologize or say, oh, my God, you know, I always he casually looked over his shoulder. And he's like, hey, how are you? I go, hey, how am I, motherfucker? Let me show you how the fuck I am, Dennis. And I fucking rushed across his room and a violent struggle ensues. I have a knife in my hand. He's punching me. I'm stabbing at him. At one point, I put the knife right through my hand. Eventually, he falls to the ground. I kneel down in front of him, and I say, it's not so fun raping little boys now, is it, Dennis? And I slit his throat. And it's over. Before I left the house, I walked to the bedroom where he raped me at, and I spit on the bed. And then I walked out. I was going to say, you're going to spit or piss on that bed or something. spit on the bed. And people ask me. How did, how did you feel? Like, did that, like, relieve everything? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I go, Bro, I got to tell you something, man. I'm so, I'm really sorry about this, buddy. Like, I, I don't know what else to say to you. Like, I'm really fucking sorry that this happened to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's not like that, that took away everything. You know, it was horrific. You know, you're in hand-to-hand com- yeah. combat. And it was a fight to the death. And... and yeah, I, I, I killed an animal, but it, it didn't, like, take everything away from me. She's never going to erase the memories. No. Well, you know. You spit on the bed. What's the police? Do you wait for the police to come or you run? No, no. We left. We went home, but I knew the injury was going to be my, my, you know, downfall. You got to go to the hospital. I didn't go to the hospital, but, you know, I, my mother was up from Florida, and I knew my life was over. And I just felt I righted a wrong for a whole bunch of people. Is your life over or is it just beginning? The life I had been living died right there with Dennis Peck. That's how I see it. That life died. Yeah. I don't that life was over. Mur- murder murder is an awful thing. Not this time, brother. I'm gonna tell you right now, not this time. I'm gonna say justified. So the injury to your hand leads the police to come. Yeah, but through through it was family members that you know that that you know ended up. That's how they got to me. Your family or his? Mine. You know, I had told my mother. My mother told my sister. My sister told her therapist. The therapist is like, maybe he's not dead. Well, word like, had to be all over town at this point. I mean, one of the one Listen, of the most respected guys in the town. Well, you know, nobody's gone to the house yet. Nobody knew. This is the next day, and uh, I, you know, I I wake up and I go out. My mind told me, like, you know, I instantly like, holy fuck, what did you do last night? What the fuck did <laughs> you do? You're and I'm like, you know, my hands all fucked up. I severed all the ligaments, ligaments and tendon. It's it's like that, you know. And I'm like, what are we going to do? And my mind said, let's get some drugs and alcohol in our system. And we'll be able to come up with a plan. And I'm, and I'm like, I agree. I yell out to my empty room. I pop, I pop <laughs> a bunch of... Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I pop a bunch of Xanax. I go out. I pour a glass of wine. I look out. And, and there's at least a dozen cop cars up and down the road. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me already? And... Uh, no you fight, know. no struggle. Nah, you know, I drank two glasses of wine. They ordered me out of the house. And as I'm walking to my front door, 
you'll like this one. I had see I had <laughs> let's let's have a little levity for a second. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up this time. <laughs> <It's not me. laughs> I had seen a, a friend from high school in a bar like a month earlier, and uh, he's in the state police. And he said, "Hey, you know, come out to my car. I got a bunch of hats and shirts." He goes, take take some. So I took some state police hat, uh, shirt and hat. So before I walked out to the room, uh, before I walked out the front door, I go to my room and I find the state police shirt. I'm like, yeah, this should get me out of this. And I put my state police shirt on. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this should do it. All the PBA cards you have. And- <laughs> but, you know, you know, I got a, I got a family member gold card. Yeah. And, and the guy who gave it to me, he's like, look, dude, this should get you out of Anything but, but murder. murder. And, and boy, was he right about that. The one fucking thing that I choose to do. Damn Couldn't it. he give me the next one up from that gold card? That's a platinum card. It yeah. gets you out of murder. Bastard. This guy, Dennis Pegg, seemed to be pretty well known for doing this. Yeah, like, everybody knew. They knew. So how did the police treat you? All right. So I get arrested. I'm taken to the state police barracks. A lieutenant walks in. His first words out of his mouth are, I got to apologize to you. I'm like. Apologize for what, bro? And he goes, I've known about this scumbag for a long, long time. He goes, I could never build a criminal case against him based on rumors. All I had was rumors. He goes, you need cold, hard facts and you need victims. Whatever he did to you victims to shut you guys up prevented me from arresting him. And I, I apologize to you. And I apologize for whatever, whatever horror you went through. I was like, And then he walked out. And I sat at first, I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. And then I just got fuming mad. I'm like, I got to, I just flushed my fucking life away. And everybody in this fucking town knew what this guy was doing. And nobody stopped this animal. I had to be the one to stop him and, and piss my life away. That's crazy. This guy comes back in later on. And he's like, look, bro. My detectives are waiting in the next room with prosecutor detectives to I- interrogate you. You're in deep shit right now. If you go into that room and open your mouth, you're going to fucking sink your ship. I'm telling you, I want you to exercise your Fifth Amendment rights and keep your mouth shut and request a lawyer. Whatever they ask you, you just say, I want a lawyer. He goes, you understand me? He asked me three times if I understood him because he said he walked back in that room and he could tell I mailed it in. He could tell that I had given up on life, and he didn't want my life to be over. And, in, and he did that for me. And without him doing that, snapping me back into reality, I might have gone in there and just talked. Yeah. He said was your, he was your guardian angel. Yeah. And uh, I went into that room. I was literally in there for 30 seconds. I'm like, I request a lawyer. And they're like, is this really how you want to play it out? I'm like, yep. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And it was done. So the trial goes to, what was your plea? Yeah. I sat in a county jail for three and a half years. Uh, and then they finally offered me a plea deal. You know, enough victims came forward. The prosecutor said he was running a dual investigation, one against me and one against what Dennis Pegg had been doing for decades. What the fuck's the sense of that investigation now? Just can't prosecute anybody. Yeah. Yeah. But but to lower my charges. Yeah. Okay. Like, like, All right. Yeah. yeah. Like they're investigating him and coming up with enough dirt to be like, uh, you know, are we, you know, one thing that happened they kept me in a suicide cell for the first four weeks I was in there. And they had me in the right spot, you know. But 
the third day I was in there, a guard I knew from the streets came in and he's like, bro, how you doing? I'm like, fucking shitty, bro. I'm in prison. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> now, now, were, were you in the jail where Dennis, Dennis worked? Dennis Pegg worked his whole career. Yeah. I'm in that jail and I'm thinking these guys are going to beat me to death. Yeah. And one by one, guys are coming into the suicide cell saying, keep your mouth shut. Let this play out. I'm hearing a lot of shit about this guy. I didn't know him. You know, just don't, don't talk to anybody. This guy comes in that I know, and he's like, do you know what's going on in the community? And I'm like, no. He goes, somebody's already started a free Clark campaign. He goes, there's bumper stickers everywhere on cars everywhere already. He goes, there's sh- people are wearing shirts, hats. Um, the prosecutor said in court one time, your honor, I don't think I can get a fair trial. Everywhere I look, there's a car with a free Clark uh, sticker on it. <laughs> you know? So people wanted to know why this animal was still walking the streets. They didn't. They didn't want to know why I did what I did. They knew what I, why yeah. I did it. They wanted to know why he wasn't locked up. Yeah, exactly. And why nobody took the fucking horns and ran with it and pushed to have this guy locked up. Right. They knew what was going on. Right. There, there's a guard who reached out to me who said on her very first day on the job at the jail, when Dennis was still working, her fellow uh, workers said to her, oh, uh, he was a sergeant at the time. Sergeant Pegg likes little boys. This is her first day on the job. It's like they all fucking knew. So, and so, that, I don't. I, that might that might make it worse for me that that, that people knew. Yeah, yeah exactly. of course it makes it worse. Balls to say anything. But I'm sure he inst- he instilled the fear into everybody. Like no, you said, because he was a big he guy. Didn't rape everybody. No, what but I'm, I'm just saying, saying just, you know, people that knew if if they had an inkling, he probably instilled some fear well, into it's them. Like, it's like the Catholic priest. There, there's. Everybody working in the church organization who's doing there was, that. There was, they know. there was seven of them in my high school. That, that, that were pedophiles? Yeah, and I, I always said, like, why didn't you touch me, man? I, what, am I not attractive? <laughs> what the fuck? Hey, listen. You were a late bloomer. I, was, well, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't attractive enough. But yeah, some of them. So, some like, people were like this. They would just know? move them. That's, yeah. And they would move the, the, the priests who did it. Not the, not the smash on the Catholic church, but. Years ago in the 60s and 70s, they would move the priests to the schools and, and out of the parishes, which is retarded yeah. or stupid. It's really just stupid to do that. You're right. putting them around kids. Yeah. yeah, You're putting them around kids, right. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Now, So, so I take a plea yeah. uh, to second-degree manslaughter, and, and the judge gives me the minimum, five years. And he apologizes on the record for having to send me to prison for a single day. Well, it had to be passion provocation also, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it had never been used 30 years after. Usually passion provocation is you walk in, you know, some guy's banging your wife, you know. This is 30 years after the fact, but there's four criteria to passion provocation, and I did fit into each one, you know. Mm. Well, you you did your time, and you said you found therapy in prison. Finally finally got therapy in prison. How did that start to release some of the demons? Yeah, well, I, I... I had never talked about like going into prison. The only one I had talked to was my lawyer about what happened. Yeah. You know, that's not that's not really therapy. That's just reciting. Yeah. So I, I I start therapy. My second one on one with her, she goes, "Hey, I I run a group therapy class in the prison for childhood trauma." She goes, "Would you join that?" And I said, "Sure." And uh, I'm in there with blood gang members, Latin King gang mo- members, Muslims, Christians. Some had been molested. Some just had childhoods that are completely off the charts. And we're all telling our story. We're crying in front of each other. We're hugging each other. And we're healing. 
And that that group therapy thing was the biggest healer. Mike and I are well-versed in group therapy and it, the, the benefits of group therapy. People don't realize it because what happens is you're amongst people of all different types. There is no color. There is no sexual orientation. Yeah. There is no religion. Gay guys in there, too. There, there's no religion. It's an level. It's a total level playing field. Right. And you're all, you all know, yeah, he's doing, this is what's happening to him. And, and he, this is how he's feeling. You, it's like, you know, and that's the benefit of group therapy. And I, I'm such a huge believer in it. And that's what we do here at Suffering Podcast. It's a giant piece of group therapy. Now, you do, uh, I'm sure there's people from that group that you still talk to today. Uh, no. If, if they're out. Yeah. They yeah. Most, most were doing long, long bits. Long uh, yeah. Now you get out your first taste of freedom. What was that like? Uh, right to a diner, you know, uh, Belleville diner, um, uh, get some, get some decent food. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, uh, I had no clothes, you know, what, what I walked out with was it. So we went to Kohl's and my niece took me on a shopping spree and, and I was so like, when you, when you get out of, out of prison, you know, uh, you're so out of sorts. I was afraid. I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom so bad in Kohl's. And I'm like, I go to her, where's the bathroom? And she's like down there. And I'm like, you got to walk me there. She's like, are you for real? She goes, you could take anybody here. I'm like, yeah, I, I can't walk by myself. You know, I've, I just you become institutionalized. Feel, yeah, yeah. I feel comfortable. So she had to walk me to the bathroom, you know, and, uh, a friend wanted to have a big party for me when I got, I'm like, fuck no, bro. And I just, I avoided people for a while, you know, you can say, how did the people from town treat you when they saw you yeah, or, you or did you just shelter for a while? Yeah. I mean, I, I laid low, um, but uh, I was I went back to Stillwater and, and I was I was nervous about going back that people would be yes. oh that's the guy that's the guy that's the guy that's and, and instead none of that happened it was all love it was all apologies people all throughout the community gave me money to get back on my feet that's a beautiful allowed thing. allowed me to buy a car that's a beautiful know? beautiful thing yeah. you know what they were doing too with some of these people who especially who knew. They were buying themselves out of guilt. And, and, and buying themselves out of guilt. And exactly. You know what? When I, when, I, when I read my allocution statement, when I accepted my plea deal, I got a standing ovation. And what I've said is I think there was communal guilt. You know, it's, it's a Nazi term, communal guilt. And I think the town had communal guilt about knowing what this animal was doing. And they released it that day, you know, like applauding me you know they weren't applauding that i murdered they were applauding that i found my voice and i finally spoke up you know for the first time about on that. behalf of plenty of other victims who didn't have the balls to actually step yeah, yeah, up you yeah. were that, that face. you were the face of yeah of redemption yeah. of revenge now you go out and do some speaking engagements now right? yeah you're telling your story because it's important you know, I decided to get baptized when I got out. My second month out, I, I went and got baptized. And I got baptized in a tub made by New Jersey prisoners. You know, it was fitting. And I had to read a testimony. It was a big church, you know, probably 500 people in the audience. And I read a, a testimony why I was getting baptized. I gave a quick little synopsis. And there was a girl from this place, Ginny's house. It's for abused children. She was in the audience. And she reached out to me and she said, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I'm presenting at Centenary College. Would you like to be my guest speaker? Here, here I'm not even out of prison, you know, a couple months, and I'm getting a, a speaking gig at a university. I'm like, hell yeah. From there, uh, you know, I wanted, uh, selfishly, I wanted to sue the Boy Scouts. I went to, you know, one of the high-powered law firms in Newark, and the guy read me the law, and he goes, you, have, you, have, you can't file a lawsuit. 
the law stated you have from age 18 to 20 to file a lawsuit. Damn. You get raped at 12. I got to come forward at 18. Are you out of your mind? Or, or two years from the time of awareness of what happened to you is adversely affecting your life. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? He's like, that's legalese for you're fucked. Jesus. Well, they changed the statute of limitations now on, on rape and all that, right? Yeah. yeah. So he says to me, he goes, there's advocates who have been working for 15 years to change the statute of limitations law. I think it would be healthy for you to join up with them. And who knows? Maybe something crazy like your story will hold some weight and get the law finally changed. I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. So I went in selfishly, and then it became unselfish. Look at how many kids that you've helped by doing what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I, the sad part is, is it's awful what you went through to do what you're doing now, just like that, getting that law changed so that doesn't happen again. I hate to say this, but it, it was almost necessary is a wrong word. Uh, you, no, you know no, what, you yeah, know, it, was, it was. You know what I'm saying? It was, like, though. You, now, if what happened to me, I led a life without direction. I was just running from my pain. I, I now have direction. And I, I led a selfish life. I, re, I led a destructive life. And now I, I have a life of giving back and helping others. You... That's why we started this podcast for exactly, exactly what you just for said. people like you. You took your pain, you repurposed it, and you put it back out in the world for good. Yeah. If I didn't, I'd probably go back to that old Clark. Yeah. Like, I can't sit on my couch with a remote control in my hands watching TV and be like, I'm healed. I'm all better. I got to help the next person. If you're all better, if you were to tell me, hey, I'm, I'm healed, I'm all better, I'd say you're full of shit, dude. Right. Never uh, happened. I'll never be. You'll never be better. totally healed. No. Now, Hey, uh, where, so where can we find you? Um, I use my name. I don't go by anything slick. Just Clark Fredericks. I'm in. I'm. I'm on all the major, you know, social media things, but primarily Instagram and uh, Facebook. All right. So we'll um, put some links in. Our I have. Show notes. A, I have a website, ClarkFredericks.com. All right. We'll put that link in there as well. Um, you know, you go on there. Uh, I've got a five and a half minute video. Uh, you know, professionally done. That'll sum up my whole story mm. you know um took us an hour to sum up your story and we're still not done <laughs> you did it I, could five sit, minutes. I could sit here and, and talk about this but it, it would there would be some there would be a lot of disgust coming out of my mouth and i'm trying to yeah. hold that yeah, in yeah, and be, yeah. be somewhat neutral you've gone through one of the pieces of ultimate suffering that we've experienced only two times like there's there's a lot of suffering out there don't get me wrong but there's some really like super, super suffering. And I think this is one of them. You've gone through all this stuff. What do you think it's taught you? Um, you know, the molestation rape wasn't what destroyed my life. The, the silence was. And breaking your silence is, is the first step of healing. It's not the only, like I've had, I had a good friend. He was a real tough dude, motorcycle one percenter, who in and out of prison his whole life. He finally broke his silence to me and said I was molested as a kid too. He never followed it up with any any other help, and he went right back to drugs and he committed suicide. And and that really hurt. And so so breaking your silence, um, you know, is the uh, is is the utmost thing you have to do, but then you got to follow it up. You know, I had, to, I had to uh, allow God into my life. I, I went through life angry at God. 
Like, uh, you know, like. How'd you let this happen to me? Yeah. You know, you know at, at, at 12 years old when you're getting raped, you know, you want that, that lightning bolt to come down to strike this piece of shit dead, right. you know, and it didn't happen. Unfortunately, and, uh, God doesn't work that way. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, so I, I was able to mend the fence with God, let's say, and create a spiritual relationship, you know, and, and that was part of my healing. And, uh, you know, helping you really, you really start healing when you help the next person heal. You know, that's, it's all about, that's what, like, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many private messages I've gotten of people who open up to me and, and I've always responded. It may take me some time, you know, like when I do something that's how we big, connected. yeah, yeah. So before we go and we're about to wrap up here, yeah. I want, I want to tell everybody the serendipitous nature of how Clark and I connected. So I did a podcast and. I got lots of comments on the you podcast. Had, you, when I commented, you had like 2,500 or right. so already. So, yeah. So there's a lot of comments on there. And I see a picture and it says something like, hey, from a fellow Jersey guy, blah, blah, blah. And I just clicked on your on your YouTube channel. And you got like three, four videos up there. You don't have much on there. And I go, I know this guy. I know who this guy is because I read that story. I read it when it happened. <laughs> right. And I reached out to you. I, and, I said, hey, find me. Find right. me on Instagram and let's connect. And I, I go to my girlfriend. I'm like, he couldn't. He can't be googling 2,500 names. Like, what the hell? How does he want me to connect with him? For whatever reason, right. for whatever reason, you'll call it whatever you want. God's plan, serendipity, co- coincidence. I saw your picture, and you said that the name. Like, I know that name I, somehow. I I, and, I clicked. On, no, you you know, I I can't say I knew the name, but I you said you were from Jersey, but I saw the picture and something made me click on it to look at your channel. And I on that particular show, I didn't really check out other people's YouTube channels. Like, there's right. just too many of them. I clicked on yours, and we connect. And you were here to tell one of the most courageous, horrifying stories I've gut, ever heard in my life. Gut wrenching. This was this was incredible, brother. Like seriously, incredible. And I know you've heard this plenty of times that you're so courageous and everything. No, you're you're the fucking strongest man that I've I think I've met in a very 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 long time. And I I, I got my hats off to you. You know, it's not just doing what I did and surviving what I survived. It's it's then what I, what am I doing with What's my next? life now? You know, and, and I just signed a uh, deal with Simon and Schuster for a book. You know, they want they want the finished manuscript October of uh, twenty three. When that comes out, make sure you come on back. Yeah, Abs- without a doubt, absolutely, without without a doubt. Sure. absolutely. Once you're here, your family. Yeah, Clark. Clark I, I got to tell you, I mean that that is like I said, a, a terrible story. You're a great guy. You're a strong guy. I give you a lot of credit for what you did. Thanks, Mike. And I think there's a lot of people that are going to learn from what you because you like Kevin said before, you did what everybody wants to do. Yeah, you know, hearing your story, I want to go up and kill the fucking guy. But if you oh, to or, to the people who are watching, if you know of anybody, if you have an inkling of anybody, and you don't know who to reach out to, I'm sure you have resources now. Yeah, or you have resources. Reach out to Clark. Yeah, on Instagram, send me a private message, or, or so reach out to us, and we'll get the message to Clark somehow. I want to thank you so much for coming in here My today. My pleasure. Oh, uh, this yep. this was something else. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast. And as always, let's think about what we learned today. There are no little secrets with kids. Crimes against children are completely unforgivable. This has all got to end. This has all got to end. Silence is destructive, but most importantly, out of the darkness comes Clark Fredericks. 
I'm so grateful for you, brother. Thank Amen, you. man. All right. Thanks. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of Revenge with Clark Fredericks. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Follow Mike at Mike underscore Fillets. Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. And of course, follow The Suffering Podcast. And we will see you on the next episode.